0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 680. It is a miracle every time you make a movie, and a bigger miracle if it turns out well. Mark Forrester. Audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Enjoy today's episode with guest host Jason Buff.
1: Today we're talking with the director of one of my absolute favorite films, The Last Exorcism. Um, Daniel Stamm is with us today And I'm really excited to for you guys to listen to what we talk about I learned a whole lot And one of the biggest things I got out of this Was Daniel's checklist that he goes through You know, he, he's known for being a very prepared director And he actually gave me his list uh, His checklist of things that he makes He, he looks at before he directs a scene Alright, here is my interview with Daniel Stamm And I think the best place to start is going into when film really kind of um, affected you, like the films that you were – that kind of convinced you that you wanted to do this for a living when you were growing up.
2: Well, my dirty secret is always that I didn't start out wanting to make movies. I was a a big role-playing game nerd, a lot of Dungeons and Dragons in my teens and all that stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and I always thought I have to find some kind of job where I can keep playing Dungeons and Dragons, basically, and get paid for it. So I wanted to be a writer. And okay. I was kind of looking around in Germany for programs where I could study writing because German parents won't let you just do something. If you don't get a diploma for it, they don't take it seriously. So I knew I had to look for something where I could get a diploma and it would kind of be taken seriously. So I always said I wanted to be a journalist, which was a complete lie. Because I wanted to write novels, (laughs) you know, make, make stuff up. That was always amazing to me. Just the feeling that you could sit down with a couple of people and make something up and suddenly it exists in everyone's minds. And you have Mm -hmm. like this, you know, this godlike power of creativity was always mind blowing to me. And I think once, once you've experienced that, it kind of gets addictive. You know, Mm -hmm. there was never like a question that I could do anything else. So then I ended up at a film academy in Germany in Ludwigsburg which was kind of the most modern film school in Germany. They're very renowned, traditional old film schools in Germany that Wim Wenders and Fassbinder and all like the Werner Herzog, all the, the old German greats went to. And then this film school opened up and it was very commercial. You know, it didn't didn't only support like making movies. It made commercials, it made TV shows, it made all that kind of stuff that the other schools frowned upon. And I studied screenwriting there and I was there for four years and wrote my little screenplays, and then I would give it to a directing student, and that directing student would go off and make the movie, and it'd be horrendous. Which you always, <laughs> always think. And looking back now, they were pretty brilliant. But, of course, as a writer at the time, you're so stuck on what you have in your head that no matter what they come back with, it's never what you imagined it like. You know? right, yeah. I should have given them some slack. But they also always came back with these amazing stories that were like adventure stories because there was always... I mean, everyone who's tried making a movie knows that there are always unsurmountable conflicts, you know, and it's a a team sticking their head together and trying to figure it out. And the the actresses are beautiful and there's romance on set. (laughs) It's all that stuff that you kind of yearn for and you're locked out of all of that as a screenwriter. And I always had the feeling the storytelling process is kind of artificially cut in half Because I've already figured out the story, I have the characters in my head. All I need to do is to communicate that to the actors and the cinematographer and the production designer, and I can call myself a director. It was always weird to me that there was some random person coming in halfway through the process, taking over, being the big shot that then gets all the credit (laughs) for the movie. Right. So I thought, I can do that too. But then my friends at the German film school, they weren't that taken with their directing program. So when I decided to start uh, study directing, I knew I didn't want to do it there, even though it's a great school. But I came to Los Angeles and studied at AFI, the American Film Institute here. And sure. I was, you know, lucky. It's a crazy, expensive school, which I had to learn that everything in the States is because in, <laughs> in Germany, yeah. it's free, you know, you go to film school. It's an, an application process. that's kind of tough to get through. But once you do get through it, you don't have to pay anything. And then AFI suddenly was like $100,000 or something crazy, which I didn't have. So it took me a year and a half to raise the funds through scholarships from different organizations and all that, which was kind of a job in itself. And then I came here, all bushy-tailed and wide-eyed to Hollywood, which still kind of <laughs> amazes me. Every time I take the the exit ramp and it says Hollywood, I'm always like, oh man, I'm, I'm in Hollywood. <laughs> that never wears off. And then I found out that uh, the German Film Academy that I went to, they had sent a group to the American Film Institute before they started the school for a week to explore and to do research. And then they basically rebuilt the American Film Institute in Germany, like the structure, the the curriculum, everything, the people they hired, even it, it, it was weird because it was like, I knew everything about the school and I'd never been there because it was a mm-hmm. one-to-one copy of the whole thing. And then I started directing uh, short films there and kind of, met my team there that I'm still working with, my cinematographer and my editor. We worked together there. And it was kind of a great environment because the German film school didn't have the language barrier. Everyone that was studying there came either from Germany, Switzerland, or Austria. So there weren't very big differences in in cultural approaches to narrative, to, to uh, storytelling, to filmmaking. Um, but at AFI, my first group was... A Native American writer, an Australian cinematographer, an Asian production designer, and a Indian editor, and we were making and me as a German director, and we made a hip hop movie, which (laughs) none of us knew anything about. Um, Of course, that's of course that's what you made exactly. (laughs) But it was cool because you suddenly get challenged all the time, all these things that you kind of take for granted and have never thought about, like your editor will suddenly let a wide shot stand for two minutes and you kind of go crazy and you go like we can't do that and she says why can't we do that and suddenly you have to search inside of yourself what your impulse is, where that's coming from, that you can't do that, like everything, every creative decision you suddenly have to verbalize and discuss with the team and there are some fights that you win and some fights that you lose and if I was very concerned with kind of de-emphasizing the power of the director, which I think was really helpful that you weren't the big shot. You didn't get to call all the shots. Like the first short film was initiated by the writer. So the writer had all the power, which created complete chaos because obviously the the writers were like in character completely different from the directors. Like the directors normally are these kind of grandiose, confident people and the writers (laughs) are these really sweet, kind of smart, but introverted people. So it kind of put everything on its head and it was a really good process because you couldn't just take something for granted and just pull the director card and do it. Um, And then, yeah, then, then there was a seminar for the cinematographers, I think in second year where one of the teachers told the class a genius thing that changed my life, which is tell your directors to shoot, 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 don't. Spend years fundraising. Don't spend years developing because it's a trap. Like Many of my friends that did that, they're still fundraising. They're still developing something and have been for 10 years. And they never shot a frame because they kind of missed that momentum. And it's hard to get that back out of nowhere. So my my cinematographer called me every day and said, are we shooting something yet? And I always said, I don't have a script. And he said, (laughs) it doesn't matter. Let's shoot something. And that's exactly what we did. We kind of looked for a story
0: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show
2: that would support us not having any money because no one had any money you were coming out of film school you're completely broke uh digital was this was in 2004 kind of you could shoot digital but it was still kind of expensive So another seminar, Dave, I actually taught you to concentrate on what you have and build your project, your first project after film school around that rather than trying to achieve things that you don't have. So if you know a great actor, you know, write something for that actor. If you know a great location, build something about that. If you have access to a crazy advanced camera, you know, then construct something where you can show that up. And we were sitting down and we basically said, okay, we have nothing. (laughs) <laughs> what have we got to construct like something about. but what you have in Los Angeles of course which is a tragedy for them but great for us is you have so many good actors out of work that mm-hmm. are would do anything for no money and if you can just find them and give them something worthwhile to do you don't really have to pay them so we we decided that we'd make a fake documentary which at the time that was kind of before the whole fake documentary wave like break Blair which had been made five years earlier but had kind of not really spawned any any new movies yet this was before paranormal activity and all that mm-hmm. and we thought if we shoot in that format we don't have to light anything Any everything can look gritty and and bad and it doesn't matter because if it looks bad that's just adding to the realism of it all so let's shoot in that style we'll just get a video camera that one of our actors had and we we borrowed it from him and then we came up with a story that there is a filmmaker documentary filmmaker in film school and for his thesis project he is finding a suicidal guy on craigslist and basically is following him through his last weeks and then of course there are all kinds of complications there becoming friends and the sound girl is falling, he's falling in love with a sound girl and all kind of, all kind of complications. (laughs) Right. But we had four pages, you know, we didn't have a script and I was so traumatized from AFI from the process of working with a screenwriter because me as a screenwriter myself, of course we were bumping heads all the time. So what, why I wouldn't have shot anything for a decade, probably like everyone else is that I was so exhausted. And even the thought of getting together with the screenwriter again and writing something kind of sounded crazy from to me. So this this project that we went into with a four-page outline was kind of perfect. And then we improvised all the scenes with the actors and made that movie. The downside was because we didn't have a script, there was never it was never over. You know, we were kind of improvising scenes into the blue. And if something didn't work, then we would just shoot more scenes and shoot more material. And it took us three years to make the movie in the mm-hmm. end. And of course, like the tough thing is to, to support yourself while you're making your movie and you're kind of phonetically single-mindedly focused on making that movie. But at the same time, you kind of have to eat and pay rent and all that stuff. So that was a tough time. <laughs> um, yeah. But in the end, at some point it was, it was done. And then we submitted it to AFI fest to the festival At which we were always told AFI graduates don't get into AFI Fest because they don't want to be seen as kind of leaning towards their own people and all that stuff. But somehow we got in and we won the Audience Award, which was a big thing at the time because other films that had won the Audience Award were like Hotel Rwanda and Life is Beautiful and all these kind of big movies. And suddenly there was our small movie in between there that no one had ever heard about.
1: You you haven't – it's A a Necessary Death, right? It's A Necessary
2: Death, yeah. yeah. It's on Netflix right now.
1: Oh really? Oh great! Yeah, I, I've I've watched a lot of the um, I watched the some of the footage you put on YouTube.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. those were the. But the, I was trying
1: to I was trying to watch scenes. it and and yeah. yeah, that's great.
2: Oh, that must have been so weird to just watch the deleted scenes of something. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole new approach. <laughs>
1: um, so let me talk a little bit about that. You know, um, in terms of improvisation, how would you guys like say you're you're going out to shoot one day? What, how would you you know put that together?
2: Well, I think that the main thing is to, in the beginning, understand that it's a completely different talent to have for an actor to be good at improvising than to be good at making written lines come to life and appear fresh and as if they're being said for the first time. One of my actors put that really well, that there is a different part of your brain that processes making up lines for the first time rather than regurgitating uh, lines. Mm -hmm. And that's something that a lot of producers I later learned don't really know about. Like if you are making an improv project, then you have to cast improv people. It doesn't make any sense to give them a scene and lines and see if they can make that come to life because it won't help you in the moment at all. So I was very much focused on finding great improvisers. And what you kind of get as a bonus is that you end up with very smart people because improvising takes a lot of brain power, and you have to be very fast thinking on your feet. And you have to be very high energy, which is really important. I didn't know that at the time, but you really are looking for someone who has a higher energy than real life. Like if you take people that are very authentic, but they all kind of are either normal life speed or slightly slower, it'll bore you to death on camera. And you kind of have to try to make up for it in editing and all that kind of stuff. And It's hard. So luckily I I ended up with very eloquent, very smart people. Um, And then we kind of went out and I always gave them a paragraph and said, okay, this is the scene we're coming from. The great thing is that you can shoot in chronological order, which is huge, of course, for the actors to be able to kind of base their performance on the scene you are just coming from, which you don't have in normal narrative movies because they're always scheduled by location and sometimes you shoot the climax, the third act first, and then go back to the, the third act first and then go back to the first act and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of brain power always goes to kind of reminding the actors where they are coming from and all that. So that was easier for us because they knew where we were coming from, but I would summarize it for them again and then kind of tell everyone what they are trying to achieve in the scene and not give them the outcome and just kind of give them the intention that they are going into the scene with and really talk that up to them. And sometimes, take them aside and talk to them separately so that they don't overhear what the other person's objective is. And then we would just shoot and shoot and shoot. And because it was video, we didn't have to, you know, care about how much material we were shooting. So the first take was always 20 minutes long. And then we did Mm -hmm. the second take and I kind of pointed out which the great moments were. And we boil it down to 10 minutes and then to five minutes and then to two minutes and then to one minute. And in the end, we ended up cutting all these things together. And oftentimes we ended up with the first take, with parts of the first take, because it was kind of the the freshest, because it was the first time that they would come up with this stuff. And to kind of keep it as fresh as possible, I would always say new words, make up new words. Don't repeat stuff that you've said in the last take, the way you said it in the last take. Keep the ideas, but phrase it differently. Try different things, try to surprise each other and they were up for that. And they really loved each other, which was great because we spent, as I said, three years together kind of <laughs> making up stuff together. And if there had been one bad apple in that group, I think it would have been really problematic. But it was a really great group of four – core group of four people. Mm-hmm. And then the only – the team only consisted of those four people. And then my cinematographer and me, I did sound. So all together, we were six people. And- oh, so you were directing and doing sound at yeah. the same time? yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, that that kind of worked. That wasn't the problem. It's like very do it yourself. We didn't have a single like location permit or anything. If uh-huh. necessary, we could cramp the entire team plus equipment into a car. If we didn't have a location, we would just shoot the scene in the car. It was like very fast. You know, if nothing took a big setup. It's really a big relief if you don't have to make it pretty. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to light it pretty. You don't have to find a great location, but you go for realism all that stuff, all the design stuff is off your chest. You just have to, as a director, it's hard. And as a cinematographer too, it's hard to let that go because it kind of, you, it does something to your ego that in the beginning is very uncomfortable. But then after a couple of days, you kind of switch to that. My cinematographer, he's such a good cinematographer. He's Hungarian. And he would kind of, if he could, he would shoot black and white, high contrast. You know, that he's like a, a Vilmos Sigmund disciple. Mm. <laughs> and it was really hard for him to switch to making it ugly. And he would frame things so perfectly that from every now and then while we were shooting, I would have to bump into him so that the camera would shake. <laughs> and then after, right. after a week, he came to me and he said, I get it now. I get it. And it started <laughs> The big breakthrough for him was that he started listening to the, to the actors, which he wasn't used to because the cinematographers are so focused on the framing on the image that usually right. they don't listen to the actors, but because he had to listen to the actors because if they were suddenly pointing something out, outside of frame, then he would have to pan over and show that. In the beginning, some actors were like, oh, look over there. And the camera would stay on the actor. And I would always have to tap him on the shoulder and go like, pan over. And after a <laughs> week, he, he kind of totally switched to that. So that was great. Yeah. Um, so that would be my big advice, I think, about making your first movie. Don't – I know it's it's tempting – to really let your creative juices flow and to write something in the French Revolution or something in outer space <laughs> or right. something.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor: And now back to the show.:
2: But it will never get made. Like Hollywood is so fear-driven that no executive will give you that's, that will give you money to make your first movie. That's the problem. You have to have made a movie to make your first movie. And short films don't count. That's the problem. I know that short films are great to kind of learn stuff for yourself, but it's a total illusion that you can show a great short film and someone will say, you are displaying such talent that now we're going to give you millions and millions to make your first feature. I think that was the case once and there are a couple of famous examples where that might have happened, but that's like one in a million. To to bet your career on that is kind of crazy. So Mm -hmm. I think what you do have to shoot for these days is to make a feature make it as independently as possible if you are waiting for someone else to give you the green light i can promise you that you will never shoot like if you rely on someone else's money you get all these all these stories where someone prepared and prepped and they were ready to shoot and then everything fell apart like almost every story uh, ends like that you know
1: it's really funny that you're saying that because you're you're almost exactly describing the scenario that i went through because we had a screenplay. And we we had all these investors and all these things that were going on. And it completely, you know, I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for everything to be perfect. And then it fell apart, you know. So right. now what we're doing is just taking the money that we have and we're going out and shooting something, you know, just getting out and shooting and right. making something. You know right. what I
2: mean? Yeah, Yeah. And that's the hardest step, you know, because I think filmmakers are kind of perfectionists by nature. So it's the impulse, It's, I think, very common to wait for perfect conditions, but perfect conditions will never be there and money will always go away. Like my whole first movie cost $3,000 altogether. Like everything was on, we, we, we got used tapes and we taped over the dailies of day after tomorrow. (laughs) And yeah, we got, and everyone brought their own lunch. I didn't have any money to do anything. I was sleeping on a friend's couch at times. Like it was very, very clear. I promised everyone no one will ever make a dime from this, which changed everything because suddenly it's okay for everyone to work for free. If they know that you also are putting in all the work and you swear to them that you will never make a dime from it, mm-hmm. you know, like the Netflix money that we are, we're giving away to charity because I have to keep up this promise that no one can ever make any money from this movie. And that helps that freed everything up and everyone kind of contributed and brought their editing system and their camera and their sound equipment and their this and that. And it was kind of a really good time, um, but all that started with finding a story that you can shoot in a in a non pretty way, and how that really helped me later. I mean, I, w- I was lucky with all this stuff because what I learned, what I didn't know coming out of film school, is that you have to do something that Hollywood that is new and and worthwhile to Hollywood. Like the other things that no one in Hollywood will ever help you just out of the goodness of their heart. You have to get to a place somehow where you have something that they want, you know. And right. coming out of film school, of course, we always thought we have to emulate Hollywood, like the biggest thing to us was like getting a helicopter shot. Like if we could get a helicopter shot, then we'd made it, which is complete nonsense because the one thing that Hollywood has is money. Like they can have all the Holly, all the helicopter shots that they want. It's not going to impress them. You know, if you have a great stunt, it's not going to impress them. They, you have to give them something where they go like, Oh, we didn't have that before. And it's not, so it can't be about money that that was the big revelation afterwards that we luckily went the right direction out of dumb luck because we didn't have money. So we really focused on performances and, and getting very authentic moments and kind of making this heart wrenching drama thing. And because all the, all that we had was time. There's always this kind of saying that you have to out of quality uh, time and money. You have to, you can choose two. you can either get something great and make it cheaply, but it will take a long time or you can make something great and it'll, it'll take forever. Or it'll be fast, but it won't be cheap and all these things. And I think that is really true. So we didn't have money, but we had all the time in the world and we wanted to make something great. So we kind of concentrated on that. And then when we had made the movie, it turned out that that's exactly what Hollywood was looking for at the time because the fake documentary thing was just coming up and was becoming popular. And they were looking for someone to be able to work in that medium and get great performances out of it. So that's how I got my first kind of studio job with the Lionsgate project that then became the last exorcism.
1: Okay. Did you was there the idea when you went out to shoot that it's like, since we're shooting video, let's just try if we shoot like, say an hour, let's try to have at least five minutes of that be gold that we can cut out. Or was that kind of your your process with I mean back in those days I I think that shooting in video and shoot you know if you're shooting that in film, you have to kind of be like, okay, we have to get it on this take. You know what right, I mean? So y- right. you're not afforded that. When, when you're shooting video, it's a lot
2: easier. It's, it's huge for the creative process. Someone said that in an acting workshop at AFI, and it, it, it was amazing, that the most valuable words that you can ever say as a director is, I don't know, let's try it. It might not work which is exactly the opposite of what you think a director should do because you always have the feeling the director has to have the vision and has to know exactly what they want and they have to be able to communicate it to everyone and then everyone is trying to hit that on the nail somehow. And if you do that, then that's that's a lot of pressure to put on all your creative collaborators because they have to kind of try to hit your vision exactly. But if you say, guys, I don't really have a vision, let's just play and experiment and we'll come up with something together. Then suddenly you take all that pressure away from them and you allow them to contribute, everyone's waking up and is going like, "Oh my God, they want my input. They don't just want me to execute something that they have preconceived, but they actually want me to be involved in the creative process itself and suddenly you get stuff that is not filtered through one mind. you know if you are that kind of filmmaker that is that is kind of exerting that power and putting that your vision on everyone, then that means that everything that ends up on screen is filtered through your mind, and if you're a genius. That might be great if you're a David Fincher or, a, you know, Orson Welles or whatever, but I'm not, you know, and I know that. And so it's a big asset to me to get a group of people together that I think are funny and witty and brilliant and fast and get all these anarchic ideas and these moments in the scenes together and then be able to cut my scene together from all these moments that I didn't preconceive, but that were little gifts that came out during shooting, and they only came out because I gave them that freedom to just play and try stuff out. And some stuff will be totally off and will not work at all, but that's fine because we're shooting on video. And it's not that every second is golden because we're shooting on film and every second costs so much money. But video really allowed me to kind of open that up and say, we have the whole day for these three scenes. Let's just see what happens. And there was always, there wasn't a single day when there weren't moments coming up that were completely surprising and a complete gift. And over three years, honestly, I never went home not being totally ecstatic about the day. (laughs) And that's, I think, the only thing that can get you through this long shoot, you know, Mm because that's the only payoff you have is that you lie in bed at night. and You go, I can't believe that moment happened today. That look between two people happened today. That line, that idea, that this, that, that. And it's just, it's the most satisfying thing. And you never get that with a script because with a script, or you rarely get that with a script, because with a script, you have a very preconceived idea of what the scene is going to be and how it's going to look. And most of the time, the best thing you can do is to kind of achieve that. It's rare that you suddenly see something come to life in front of you that is so much better than what you had imagined in your wildest dreams in your, in your okay. mind, you know?
1: can you you had uh, told a story that I heard before about your screening in Kosovo? I was wondering if you could uh, <laughs> yeah to talk about that for just a second yeah it's
2: really interesting, yeah, in no, that was crazy because we I was at, at a kosovo film film festival with my thesis film, and then they invited me back the year later to be in the jury or a couple of years later, I guess because I did bring a rough cut off a necessary death, and there were three people in the jury, and everyone was was screening some feature film project of theirs. And my colleagues' films, this sounds very arrogant, but I thought, I thought they, were, they, were, they were great, <laughs> but they weren't necessarily mind-blowing. But the audience went crazy, standing ovations. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the best audience ever. Can't wait. <laughs> Cannot <laughs> wait to show the rough cut of a necessary And it was something that my editor had put together. It was a cut that I hadn't even seen. Um, so I was excited to see it. And we're screening the movie. And the movie is over. And I'm getting ready for my standing ovation and for people to come up to me, <laughs> give me an Oscar. And there was complete silence, absolute terrifying silence. And then there was like one person, which is the worst silence would have been. I thought in the moment was the worst thing that could happen. But then I learned seconds later, that's the second worst thing that <laughs> could happen. Because then someone right. in the last row started clapping like this which is like in a western <laughs> you know when you want to- the slow clap yeah, yeah the slow clap
0: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show
2: In a Western, when you want to show silence, you don't just have it silent, but you have like a coyote howl in the (laughs) back. There's like a cricket. A cricket, exactly. (laughs) That's what it was like. And I didn't get it. I was so impressed and taken with my own uh, creation up there. And and the great thing about fake documentaries is also because everyone is contributing, you don't have to be an, an egomaniac to love the product because it's everyone's creation together. Yeah. So I was really amazed by the thing and couldn't wrap my mind around why no one was responding to it. I thought it was so powerful. And then I was walking down the steps to do the Q and a, and I turned around and everyone was kind of moving in the audience, which was weird because normally for a Q and A you just stay in your seats and you don't get up and you don't walk, but people were walking out or running around or whatever. And then I realized that there were people in the audience that had broken down, and their, their friends were kind of gathering around them and pulling them back up to their feet and were talking to them and whatever, whatever. And next to me was a girl that was rocking back and forth, and she had her hand in her her face in her hands, and the tears were running down her forearms. And that's when I realized, wait a minute, they didn't understand that this wasn't a real documentary. I didn't announce that beforehand. I didn't mean to fool anyone. There just wasn't a situation where you kind of would have announced it. And they were reacting to it as if they had just seen this guy kill himself on camera. And because the the character is a very lovable character, they were devastated by it. And I was running around. It was the worst feeling because you had – it's as if you had dropped this bomb on these people – And they were seriously hurt. So I was running around trying to tell everyone that, that this is a fictional film and they didn't get it. When I would say Matt, the suicidal guy. So there was Matt was the suicidal guy and Gilbert was the filmmaker that was following him. And I would, Mm -hmm. I would tell someone who had broken down Matt is an actor. (laughs) And the first reply, (laughs) first reply I got was like, does Gilbert know? (laughs) <laughs> I was like, no, oh, Gilbert's an actor, too. Like, it was so hard. <laughs> and then there was one girl, an American girl, as you, as you would imagine, that was attacking me. She was jumping at me, and she grabbed me by the collar, and she shook me. She was this tiny girl, but she was just in, in ninja mode <laughs> or something. And she screamed at me, you're a murderer. You shouldn't be allowed to make movies. And then her friends dragged her off. And then... <laughs> And the organizer, the organizer of the uh-huh. festival came up to me and whispered in my ear and said, stay where you are. Don't go outside. There is a mob gathering to deal with, <laughs> which is exactly the words you don't want to hear in Kosovo that had just been through a murderous <laughs> yeah. war. Right. The last yeah. thing you want is a mob that's gathering.
1: It it it's was, bad when you're the worst thing in Kosovo yeah. <laughs> at that <time. laughs>
2: okay. and so it was It was devastating. And then I phoned my team, my editor. And say we got to recut this movie. we got to change the ending. People were devastated. And she said, well, isn't that what we were going for? Which is true. It is a tragedy. So you kind of want to evoke these emotions. But it felt as if we were playing unfairly. And for the first time, this whole sentence with there is responsibility in filmmaking and you have to take responsibility in filmmaking – I understood what that was about. I'd never understood that whenever people were talking about, oh, Oliver Stone with natural-born killers got people to kill other people, I always thought, well, that's a powerful movie. If you can achieve that, you know, obviously the movie worked. It's a tragedy for the people that died, but is it really up to the to the filmmaker to prevent that from happening? And after seeing that in action in Kosovo, it just wasn't fun. It wasn't a, a rewarding feeling of, oh, look what, what we were able to do. We just never thought about the why you know we we worked so hard on trying to to affect an audience emotionally which you always do when you make a movie that i never stopped to think well why are we doing this to them we just try to get them to feel bad but we don't give them anything in exchange you know and that was kind of an epiphany to me and then we did recut the movie screened at south by southwest and then screened at afi fest and won the audience award which i think we wouldn't have if we hadn't recut the movie, but it definitely was counterintuitive to say our movie is, it sounds very arrogant again, but our movie is too powerful for the audience to consume. (laughs) We have to water it down, but that's kind of exactly what we did. And I think it was the right decision.
1: That's really interesting. You know, uh, can you talk about when you say give them anything in exchange and, you know, that you went back and recut it, what did you recut? And what, what was the, what was really the difference between the version they saw in Kosovo and the one that, was it a- a- Well, the
2: big difference was the ending. We had shot two endings, one which was very straight. So just to spoil it all, spoil the whole movie. In the end, Matt, the suicidal guy, and Gilbert, the filmmaker, they're going into a garage together, and Matt is going to shoot himself, and Gilbert is going to film that. And one ending was we stay outside, and we hear the shot, and then there's silence for a minute, and then Gilbert comes out, and we see a, an inkling of Matt on the floor, and he has shot himself in the head. And you can see on Gilbert's face that what he just saw was so nightmarish that he'll never, never be able to forget that. And he kind of is paying the price for for his ambition to become a great filmmaker or whatever. That was one ending, which we showed in Kosovo, which played it very straight. You know, there's this guy who is announcing he's kind of... kill himself and then he kills himself you know the entire time what's going to happen and you always kind of hope some miracle will happen but guess what the miracle doesn't happen and that's it and that was just devastating to people the other ending that we had shot was that we stay outside of the garage we hear the shot and then there's a pause and then we hear a second shot and it takes us a moment to understand what was going on and we someone runs to open the garage and both of them are on the floor and it turns out that Matt has shot Gilbert before he shot himself because of the whole subplot with a sound girl who was Gilbert's ex-girlfriend and Matt was in love with her and Gilbert who wanted Matt to kill himself um, took the girl away from him to not give him a reason to live and all that kind of stuff. So he shot Gilbert, which was the much more Hollywood twist ending and played it much mm-hmm. less straight and much less real. And it felt like that's exactly what people needed. They needed something that was, kind of tipping it off and say it's all right this is a movie here's a heightened reality and also to punish Gilbert in a more conventional way for manipulating this guy that we've fallen in love with into suicide and now he paid the price by killing him by himself by being killed so that kind of seemed to work I think that was the main the main thing and I think in general it's always like you want to take something away from a story I think that's the basis of storytelling that we kind of communicate an insight into the world and into the human experience through a story. And you put your audience through different emotions and make them invested in the thing. But it's all with the, with the implied promise that they will get something out of watching this for two hours that no one else knows. They will be let into a secret, you know, that they can Mm -hmm. take away into their life with. And we didn't really supply that secret, I had to feel I was basically saying, here's a movie that will make you miserable and teach you nothing. And that's what were, <laughs> were responding to it. That was a problem at the time.
1: Yeah. I think that's really, you know, interesting because with all the like horror movies, the whole concept of a horror movie is that you're gonna watch something that's horrible, you know, that's something that's terrible. But there has to be some element of it that attracts people to it, that makes people want to experience that. Right. You know. Right. And gives them that like experience. One one of the interesting things um, you said when you were working on The Last Exorcism, and, and I want to go to that uh, in just a second, is just that the documentary format doesn't give the audience a place to hide. Right. And I thought that was really, you know, interesting. It, it it's like you have more power doing that.
2: Well, because you have the first person narrative. People are looking right into camera, and the cinematographer is a character in the film he's not kind of this invisible floating camera but there is a direct proxy for you as an audience member in the movie and if there's danger coming towards the camera uh, it's coming towards you and it's you're kind of aware that there's danger coming from 360 degrees with a narrative conventional movie you can always kind of count on them showing you what you need to see like if there's something that's important for you as the audience member to see and not to miss They will make sure that they cut to that close-up or that insert or that whatever. And that kind of gives you a certain safety because you're being taken by the hand and guided through the story by someone who already knows the path of the story. But with the fake documentary, it's all about the stuff that you miss and that you don't see so that you keep the audience on their toes about, you know what, we might be showing you this side of the room right now. But that doesn't mean something can't jump out behind you at any moment because you know what we don't really know what's going to happen and this we don't really know what's going to happen i think it's a very important component in in a fake documentary especially in horror
1: right and you you see that a lot with i mean you know spielberg used that in saving private ryan the idea of you know and and you see that in a lot of films that you'll have a scene that's all handheld and shot like a documentary even though it's in a traditional narrative film right We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, just to give people that feeling of, of uneasiness and that at any minute something could kind of, you know, affect your, your point of view or whatever. Yeah,
2: I think the other component is that moving, moving images just stimulate the viewer and kind of and put an energy into the thing that the brain has to process so you are, mo- there's just more happening on a very simple simple way. And if you have a locked off shot from a tripod, whatever is moving is just the, the object in the frame, but 90% of what you're seeing on screen doesn't move. Whereas as soon as you go handheld, that means every single piece of grain, it would have been in, in film world, but now pixel, moves at, in at any split second. So I think there is something that is just kind of overwhelming to the brain. And that really kind of pumps up the adrenaline just by the virtue of going handheld. And the other thing that I I found out about handheld, that was amazing to me and I still don't have an explanation for it was when I was watching Lars von Trier's, the idiots, he has, mm-hmm. everything is handheld and the performances are amazing. And then for some reason there's some scene in the woods that is like a minute long where he suddenly is static on a tripod. And suddenly the performances suck. And I I realized (laughs) that handheld, for some reason, really helps out your performances. Like everything gets better if you go handheld. Maybe that is because the audience can't focus on every single twitch in a face at any moment. Like if if there is a stale performance, probably if you have Meryl Streep and Amy Adams, and John Malkovich, you're fine. You probably don't have to go handheld. But if you if you have performances that are on the, on the staler side, going handheld suddenly gives that whole thing a vital effect that you otherwise wouldn't get. I don't know what it is, but I yeah. swear as soon as you try it out, you'll see that your performances get much better in handheld.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, you know, it's also the concept that you're capturing something that's really happening and the camera's not like, the camera's not ahead of the action. Right. You know, the camera's following the action and, and seeing things, you know, all of a sudden. And you, I, you see this a lot in The Last Exorcism that, you know, as they're moving through a scene, it's like the camera is like it'll go over and capture something. And you're like, oh, did I just see that right, or right, what right. was that? You know what I mean? It's like it, it adds a lot more dynamic feel to
2: it. Yeah, that's really hard to simulate for the cinematographer if you're on take 20. And you've walked through that scene <laughs> right. for him to kind of pretend he is very surprised by what just came into frame. is kind of an art form in itself.
1: Okay. Well, why don't we jump into that? Can we um, talk for uh, a little bit about how um, The Last Exorcism started, how you got involved, meeting with Eli Roth, all of that
2: yeah, in, yeah. Uh, story? So I had made Last Exorcism and Last Exorcism had won the Audience uh, Necessary Death and the Necess- Audience yeah. Award, which – changes everything or oh, that would be my next piece of advice for the starting filmmaker, make that feature and then try to get it into festivals because Hollywood, like very few people in Hollywood, I think have taste and rely on their own. <laughs> it, it, it's true. It's really crazy. Like I get, I get scripts from studios that are so bad that you go like who, not only who wrote this, but which executive read it and said that's a good idea let's make this movie and that's 90% of all scripts and it's I think it's really rare there's a handful of people in Hollywood that trust their own opinion and what they will what the other people will rely on is other gatekeepers that at some point put a stamp of approval on that project and film festivals big film festivals with a good reputation uh, do that like if you screen at Cannes or at South by Southwest Sun, Sundance or AFI Fest or LA Film Festival or something bigger and you screen there, that's already great. If you win an audience award there or a jury award there, suddenly people will take your movie seriously and they will think the movie is great, even maybe if it isn't, but they <laughs> they don't really dare to have their own experience. So suddenly after the audience award, um, there were a lot of agents and managers that that wanted to meet and I learned that because it's always like everyone always wants an agent and thinks their career will really hit hit off, hit off it off when they have an agent, which is nonsense. And also an agent will never want you like an agent that you have to approach will never want you. You have to make something, again, that that agent finds desirable and he wants you. So this whole knocking on mm-hmm. people's doors that people are, are always trying is not going to work, but you have to. Kind of get the approval of the the stamp of approval from some festival, if possible, and then they will knock on your doors. Anyway, so we we I did the, um, the rounds with the agents, and found an agent, and we were looking at different scripts and couldn't find anything, and then I had the feeling I had done a necessary death, and I had this feeling I really want Jacob Foreman to see this movie. Jacob Foreman was a screenwriter in my year who wrote uh, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane and was a really good guy. But we never, uh-huh. never had that much to do with each other at AFI. And I don't know where this feeling came from that I wanted him to see the movie. But it was just a really strong feeling. So I emailed him and said, I made this movie. Can I send it to you? And he said, sure, send it to me. I sent it to him. I don't think he liked it much because <laughs> he never really commented <laughs> on it. But what happened like a, a week or two later, was that he was writing a screenplay for a production company called Strike Entertainment. And they had had two directors, Huck Butko and Andrew Gerland, um, on this movie called Cotton, which was an exorcism movie, a fake documentary exorcism movie. And the, the two directors left the project because they had another project with Will, Will Ferrell at the same time called the virginity hit. And they had to decide which one to make. And they were under obligation with Sony to make the virginity. Hit, so suddenly this project didn't have directors. And Jacob, in, during a lunch break or something, overheard two producers say, man, we lost our directors. Where are we going to find someone who can do a fake documentary? horror movie. <laughs> And Jacob had oh, necessary yeah. death in, his, in right. his bag, you know, which <laughs> I don't believe in fate or the supernatural or anything like that. But I, I have no explanation for how that. All came. And he gave them the movie. And they watched it. And it obviously wasn't a horror movie, but it was exactly the format that they wanted. And so they called me the next day and sent me the script and wanted to meet. And the script was, I think I can say it now, all these years later, was horrendous. <laughs> Absolutely horrendous. Um, and it was, also wasn't written towards a fake documentary. Because in a fake documentary, if you really want to sell it as real, then you can't have something spectacular happen in every single scene. Because the audience will figure out after two scenes that this is obviously not a real documentary. Like in a real documentary, if you catch one amazing moment on camera, people structure a whole documentary around that, you know? So <laughs> this script kind of had some action sequence with people flying through the air in every scene and just didn't work. And I went and I had no interest in making the movie. And I went into the into the meeting, if I had wanted to make the movie, I think I would have been really, really nervous. But because I basically just came there to say, your script sucks, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) I wasn't nervous at all. So I told them that very bluntly, no diplomacy involved. And I learned then that there's nothing sexier to Hollywood executives than you not wanting to do their project. Because they always, they're not stupid. They know that the script that they have out there is not brilliant and needs work, as they always call it, call it. needs a polish. But polish mm-hmm. always means a complete rewrite. <laughs> uh, and they kind of know that. And then they invite all these directors, like 10, 20 directors to come in. And 19 of those directors say, this is brilliant. I want to do this. I'm the right guy for this. And there is one guy who comes in and says, the script doesn't work. I don't want to do it. Then Mm -hmm. suddenly they want the one guy that didn't want to do it. I had that, that people for other projects that they called and said, we've shown it to 10 directors. Nine of them love it. You didn't want to do it. Could you come in for a second meeting? I said, well, (laughs) go with one of the people that want to do it, but they want to hear that, that you have ideas, how to make it better. and all that. And I basically came out of that meeting with them saying, you can do with the script, whatever you want. You can hire your own writer. You can completely rewrite it. We'll give you one and a half million dollars. Do it. And that was exactly what I needed to hear because then I brought a writer on board that I love. That's a genius who completely rewrote the movie within four days or something. Um, and then, yeah, Eli was attached. I didn't talk to him in the beginning. I think a couple of weeks later we had a call scheduled and now I was nervous because I suddenly was talking to like <laughs> the, the horror legend, Eli Roth. I think he was on the inglorious bastard set in his trailer and had just seen a necessary death and was super nice and super complimentary and stuff. Um, and then we went to make the movie and they let me bring on my cinematographer my editor. And there was a little bit of a struggle. What I mentioned before that they, because they'd never made a fake documentary, they didn't couldn't quite wrap their head around the the improv thing. Like they said, we need to see casting tapes.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: And we can only judge casting tapes, auditions, if we see actors that are doing the same scripted scene And then we can compare the quality. And I said, well, that's completely useless because even if it's a great scene and written, it's not going to help you in an improv. They said we have to do it anyway. So I I always had to make the actors read the scene. And for I knew it wasn't going to make a difference. But for the producers, it was important. And then we went off to Louisiana, to New Orleans, to shoot the movie. And the great thing was that this company, Strike Entertainment, had made all these $100 million movies with Brad Pitt and Robert Redford and whatever, whatever, and they had never made a movie under $80 million. So they had no idea what to do with our little $1.5 million movie. So they didn't take it seriously. They meant it when Mm -hmm. they said, do whatever you want. They meant that. They completely stayed out of it. So the conditions were very close to what we had in Necessary Death. We had a couple of more people, obviously, and the unions required us to have all these people. But there was a whole camera team that we never needed that was just coming in eating donuts and going, going <laughs> home. In the, in the, and I wanted that because I wanted to recreate that intimacy. That was the big strength of working in that format, that you don't have 50 people staring at the actors and that you don't, for example, have to use the slate because it, it turned out to me that clapping the slate and going like scene 14, go, action, action. Basically, communicates to the actors, now create artifice. Now try to be Mm -hmm. someone you are not, you know. So I always try to avoid slating or we would slate in the other room quietly, secretly, and then walk walk (laughs) over with the camera because I didn't want them to act. I basically wanted them to be themselves and put themselves into the situation. And we never showed the script to the actors with Last Exorcism. We had a script all written out, which we needed for the investors and for the production company and all that kind of stuff. But it was like my best hidden secret was this script. I knew if I ever showed that to the actors, it would be impossible to get that out of their heads again and make them create it from scratch and come up with all these fresh moments because they would just try to reproduce the script. And it's amazing if you watch the movie, and read the script. How close the two are. I think mm-hmm. no one would believe me if I, if it's someone who had read the script and just seen the movie would not, never believe that the actors never saw the script. But I think it's the same technique. You you tell them what motivation they go into the scene with, which is actually uh, very similar to what you do with a movie that has a script. You know, you talk to the actors about where they are coming from and where they want to go, and then let them go and kind of see how that goes. And that's how we did last episode. And then we came back from this from this experience that was just really great and started editing. And suddenly everyone was very involved. Suddenly mm-hmm. we had a lot of producers in the editing room that helped questions <laughs> and, 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 and. Um, and the ending, like if you've seen Last Exorcism, the, the, the thing that was great about the original script was the ending. And that was like the one thing that I was excited about, which was, this only makes sense if you've seen Last Exorcism, um, but the original ending was they go into the forest, they see a shadow, they see, they hear the noises of the demon and they run mm-hmm. and they don't get killed and they, they reappear a week later. And Cotton, our, our exorcist now has a full church with hundreds of people and he's a celebrity and he gets his own TV show and he's, you know, he's a star because he has, he has gotten a demon or as close as possible on video. And he's basically marketing that. And what was so smart about it is that the whole movie, he tells us what a successful evangelical preacher needs. He needs a hook, you know, which is the demon on on video. And everything Cotton does in his little frauds is based on sound and it's based on lighting and all that kind of stuff. And basically in the end, it's just the huge version of that. So I wanted the audience to leave the movie as split as they had come in with the believers saying, no, I, I saw a demon. And with these the cynics, the atheists saying, Oh, it's just, it was basically a big PR video. And this exorcist used us um, and showed us this stuff for financial gain. And I thought that was mm-hmm. the smartest thing that you come out of a movie and you don't even know if you just saw a horror movie or if you just saw a drama about a preacher that has a great marketing idea, you know, <laughs> and we shot that, it was our most expensive scene because it needed green screen for the demon. And it needed all these extras and the location of the church and all that stuff. And then we cut it together and it didn't work. Like I showed it to 10 friends. And out of those 10 friends, one, one friend thought it was the greatest ending he'd ever seen. And nine friends were completely confused and said, uh, we don't know what just happened. And I learned that you can, You can ask a question and not answer it in a movie, but it has to be clear that you're asking the question. And with our ending, it wasn't even clear that we wanted the audience to wonder about whether this was fake or not. They, they didn't even know what the question was and we couldn't, Mm. we couldn't make it work. And that, of course I had had my shot and now it, it was opened up to the group, to every producer, every cousin of a producer or the, you know, the, cleaning lady of a producer suddenly had ideas about the ending and then we ended up with one that i don't think does justice to the rest of the movie but it was the best out of the bunch and to this day i don't have a better idea and i lie lie awake at night for having screwed up the ending especially because there was (laughs) a thing to go in with um but i guess you never get that second chance it'll always be like that well
1: it's really difficult to especially when you're doing a movie like that. I don't know, there's very few movies that have a, a like completely satisfying end, ending when it comes to like kind of putting together a mystery, what's going on, they eventually figure it out and then the ending's never quite like the build is a lot more important. You know, that's what keeps you going through it. It's so weird
2: though. I, I, I totally agree, but you work towards that ending. Most of the time you have that ending before you have anything else and then you build the entire movie to lead right. towards that ending like in screenwriting you know that as a screenwriter you need to know where you're going so the ending is you know the big payoff that you are working towards and can't wait to show to the audience and then the outcome for some reasons exactly what you're describing that it's always weaker than it needs to be because there's all this expectation on it after the two hour build-up and then to pay that off is really hard you almost need like fincher's head in the box in seven or or in fight club he, he's he's good with the endings that kind of <laughs> pull, pull the rug right under. But it's rare. It's true.
1: Right now, um, I got so into listening to you, <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about my next question. Yeah. Um, how did you, uh, in, in terms of finding like Ashley Bell and the actors, how how was that process?
2: Well, that was it, it was equally hard because our casting director had no idea how to do the improv thing and didn't believe in it and didn't really take the the project that seriously which was kind of hard to overcome. And she thought I was a complete dilettante and didn't know what I was doing, (laughs) which she didn't tell me to my face, but there was a friend, an actor who was a friend of mine, which she didn't know. And he was auditioning and she was bitching to him about me, not not knowing what I wanted, which is exactly true. I didn't know what I want, but that was the point, you know, it was the point to keep it open and keep it free and whatever. Um, yeah, we. Ju- I just did improv uh, with the actors, which I still do now with projects that have a script, even if I know they're only going to to do scripted lines, because it very quickly tells you something about the energy and the IQ of the actor if they have mm-hmm. to come up with their own moments, you know. And it's something. I, I did an internship with a casting director called Melly Finn, who cast all of Cameron.
1: Oh sure, of course. You know, uh,
2: yeah, uh, Titanic and uh, uh-huh. Terminator and all that stuff. And she said, always cast actors not just for how they're acting, but for who they really are. Because when it gets to it and they are tired and you don't have time and you have to rely on them to get you out of that situation, they will always revert to who they really are at their core, which is completely true. But that also means you have to invest in that during the audition. So what I did is I sat in the waiting room and I pretended to be an actor waiting to go in and I was just shedding up the actors that were waiting to go in. <laughs> and it's a really interesting moment because it's a, it's stressful for an actor. They're nervous. They're trying to prepare and there's a guy next to them that won't shut up and tries to involve them in some conversation. And how they react to that tells you a lot about who they are. You know, as soon as they know that you're the director, they'll be on their best behavior and you don't really ever have the chance to get to know them for real until you start shooting. So it was important Mm -hmm. to me to kind of have that moment. And with Ashley especially, like she was so sweet and so supportive, and I think she thought that I was nervous. So she was trying to calm me down because she thought I was going (laughs) to go ahead. And and it was great. And then she was only the second girl that we saw for that role, and she just killed it. Like it was so scary to be in the room with her because we improvised the exorcism.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: We kind of, mm-hmm. I think in, in in auditions, you always try to see, uh, hopefully your script has a certain kind of character development and show at least two sides to a character. One is the starting point and one is the end point. So I think it's smart in auditions to kind of have at least two scenes, one scene each that, that showcases what you're looking for. And if there is no scene in the script that does that, I think it's worth it to just write a script, uh, write a, write a scene for the audition that will never show up in the movie, but just very clearly focuses to see that one side from the actor Um, because you need to see the range. And then the other thing that I always do is like, no matter how great the first take is in the audition, Mm -hmm. because sometimes people come in and they just nail it you always want to do a second take and change something. And that can be completely random. Again, it has nothing to do with the character or the script. Like sometimes I say, now do it as a five year old child. Now do it as if you are on the electric chair. Now do it. completely made up stuff, but it tells mm-hmm. you something super important. And that is how well can an actor adjust to suggestions, to direction, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. And, right. and some, I learned that the hard way during, a, during a, my thesis film that someone came in and was just amazing and then on set, she just couldn't get there. And it turned out that the night before the audition, her boyfriend had split up with her. And she was just so miserable. And the part was about a miserable drug addict. And she was <laughs> right. tired. And she just that wasn't acting. She was just so great because that really happened to her. And then on set, she couldn't reproduce that. So since then, I've always tried to make sure that I. I you can only really judge how great a, uh, an actor is if you ask them to do different things with the same material, with the same lines and see right. if, if, that's, if, that, if that's what you're going for. Um, yeah, so that's how we found Ashley. And then the exorcist was much harder. We saw hundreds of people, and we asked them to make up a sermon on the spot. And Patrick Fabian came in, and he gave this eight-minute-long, perfect, immaculate service um, and was preaching for eight minutes. And he talked so fast that I couldn't follow it. You know, I couldn't look (laughs) what he was actually saying, but there was this energy that he had that just made me want to kind of go up, stand up and cheer. And that's where this in us exorcism, the banana bread, uh, scene comes from. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that was great. So basically the, that the exorcist, that that the exorcist says, I can sell them anything. I could preach about a banana bread recipe and they would say hallelujah and they wouldn't notice and they make a bet and he does it. That came from the audition. Seeing because patrick fabian our exorcist did exactly that like he could have talked about anything and the energy still would have kind of been transmitted to the audience the way it was
1: right was it always part of the story that he was you know kind of faking it and he was like just kind of pulling something because i i read something about how it was influenced by that documentary marjo um, yeah marjo yeah and i just recently watched that and it's like it's amazing how how much power comes from watching him in that documentary there's, there's kind of a similar feel. Right. You know? right. Did that.
2: Yeah. I think did that, that's what the, I mean, that was the script that I originally got. And I think that was the the core idea to the original script was to watch someone who is not a convinced believer in exorcist, but doesn't even believe in God. And is just kind of a fraud, but at the same time, and that's always, I think important in characters that there is a but in there. He is a criminal and he's playing with people's, um, Tragedies, but mm-hmm. he is so charming that you can't hold it against him, and he's also right. his argument is I'm doing this if they believe in it and it helps them, then great, it doesn't have to be real kind of a thing so I think this this duality between the the rogueness and the cry criminal part of him and the charm is something that really made that character, and that's what we were looking for in in the actor too and it's funny to now see Patrick in the different roles because he's been in so many TV roles and he's always cast for exactly that person, for someone. (laughs) You know, you can't completely trust him. He's a bit, Uh a little bit too smooth and stuff, but he gets away with it because he's just very charming. So you build, build on that.
1: Right. Now it it seems like what you're trying to do and, and do very successfully in the beginning is, you know, it's very light. There's a lot of really kind of comic moments but there is a little bit of a dark kind of like, um, you know, when they bring out the book, when they start talking about real exorcisms, it's almost like the audience should start getting concerned, even though he's not concerned. Uh, like You yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, that, you know what I mean? That's such a good observation. Yeah, I think humor is like such a good weapon because you want to – in any movie, you want to you create identification between the audience and your protagonist in the first act. You want them to like him, to – want him to, they they want they should want him to achieve what he is trying to achieve so that you kind of suffer with them and you enjoy stuff with them if if it goes well and humor is a really good tool for that like if someone is funny you immediately like them so in especially in a horror movie where if you know you want to go horrific in the third act you need to get the audience to care about that character otherwise it's not horrific if it's just some random people getting beheaded then Mm -hmm. no one really cares. So I know that it's tricky to do terrifying and funny at the same time. So I try to stay away from that. But I try to be exactly what you were saying, light in the beginning and kind of draw the audience in through humor and fall in love with this character. And then we can go horrific later. But that's exactly what you're saying is so great that it would be great if there was kind of what you call dramatic irony, that the audience already has an uneasy feeling and that's yep. you know the feeling that the character is is walking into a trap and he doesn't know it but we know it but we like him by now so much that we fear for him i think that's a great place if you have the audience there in in the, at the beginning of a horror movie you're you're golden
1: right well you see that a lot with like jaws and things like that it's like all the characters are kind of unaware of stuff but the way things are coming together the audience is kind of like sitting there trying to hit the brakes right you know? right right <laughs> like no 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 come on let's let's slow down don't don't just run in there with the you know yeah. even though he's doing all these you know really kind of funny things with the cross and the sounds and you know and you see the the father and the way he's acting is there like a can you talk a little bit about getting into the second act and th- ways to you know one of the things that i was doing is i always try to um you know, I'm working on a screenplay that's uh, not even a screenplay, but just a story that's got the the documentary vibe to it. And what I did when I was watching The Last Exorcism was just kind of watched minute by minute what was happening. And things happen so fast in the beginning. You get so much story, you know, like what's going on, who this character is, what's going on. You know, and by the time he's leaving for, um, I believe it was Georgia, right? Uh, New Orleans, yeah, Louisiana. New, yeah, Louisiana. Sorry. Um, I should know that. he uh like it's it's only like 10 minutes into the movie you know
2: yeah that's i mean or something like sure sure. i mean you want to keep that's that's the problem you want to keep your first act as short as possible because people want to get to the meat of the story but at the same time you want to create that that uh identification if you don't have that and you leave into the second act without that in your pocket you are screwed um but a lot of that obviously is editing too it's amazing like my editor and I, we love each other. She was like the the, the priest during my wedding and all that like we're the greatest <laughs> but man do we scream at each other during editing and it's ninety percent is because she wants to cut stuff out to create momentum, and mm-hmm. I am trying to save moments and save scenes because I've worked so hard achieving those, getting that moment on camera and 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 she's just throwing it out and I take it personally it's it's, it's as if she's you know cutting a leg of my kid or something. But it always, and no matter how much I scream and, and kick and whatever, she always turns out to be right. It's always, like <laughs> it always, we always end up with the fast version. And that is, that's something I had to learn. That is actually a compliment to your filmmaking because it means you, you've tried to create 200 meaningful moments throughout the movie. And if you were successful at creating those 200 meaningful, clear and emotional moments, then you don't need 200 of them then 20 of them are probably enough to tell the story, you know, mm-hmm. and and wanting all those 200 moments in the movie is just coming out of your insecurity as a filmmaker and your, your vanity and your pride that you've created these moments that actually what I should have heard when she said, we don't need that moment is trust the other moments that you've created that are in the movie, that they are strong enough to carry this moment. You know, it's, right. it's the same with, with screen time. Like actors are always, we shoot all this stuff. Like it's a good example, the sermon with the banana bread that cottoned it. We shot that for a day and the sermon was 45 minutes long. So of course, Patrick Fabian watches the movie and goes like, Oh, here come my at least 20 minutes of sermon. (laughs) And then he's, he's devastated when it's only 45 seconds of that in the movie. But how he should see that is that those 45 seconds communicate everything we need to know about the character because he is so great in that scene. And that's exactly what you're saying. We got get so much information on that character that we don't need the 20 minutes. We, the 45 seconds are completely okay. And it's the same in editing. So I think when you are saying the first act is so fast, it probably in the director's cut was 45 minutes long and unbearable.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now, back to the show.
2: (laughs) And then my my editor will cut it down. The good thing is that I have a very bad memory, and whenever she wants to get something through, she just cuts it out and sees if I notice it or not. And if (laughs) if she shows me something in a week, I don't even notice that that stuff is gone. So we always end up with the tightest version. I think that's something for, for every filmmaker. With me, it was a long learning process. So if you could start with the knowledge that... You almost can't cut something too fast and too tight because the audience is so quickly bored. That you, if if you are precious about your stuff and you want to stick to the script, and even though the editing rhythm suggests something different to you, you are dead in the water if you don't answer that call. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, it's always an interesting contrast because, of course, later once you get into the more frightening scenes. The whole concept of anticipation and that something is going to happen, you know, then it's just like the scenes go on forever, you know, and everybody's just like waiting for something to happen.
2: Yeah, it's such a careful balance because the other thing, and that completely contradicts what I just said about cutting a first. (laughs) uh, But in some editing book, I think it was Walter Murch or something, they wrote that the audience doesn't feel speed. The only thing that they feel is acceleration which is, I think, so true. So if you start with a very fast first act and then you have a very fast second act and then you have a very fast third act, the whole thing will just seem like in one gear and won't necessarily feel fast. But if you have a a second act that is slightly faster than the first and a third act that is slightly faster than the second, Then they will suddenly say, wow, that movie is really fast, even though in, in general, it wasn't, but it accelerated. And that is something Mm -hmm. that an audience has a feeling for. And of course, the other way around, too, what you're talking about, if you slow down, it's suddenly unbearable because we've gotten used to a certain speed and suddenly deliberately you, you, you stretch a moment, you know, that really does something to the audience's psyche. But it's such a, such a balancing act. And that's why this whole wisdom of there are, what, what's the saying? There are three movies, one that you write, one that you shoot, and one that you edit, and that's the final movie. Uh-huh. I think that is really true. And the more you can subscribe to that and let go of all the preconceived notions that you had during writing, and then even harder of how hard it was to get that crane shot in that scene and that, you know, that day that actor was in a bad mood and I still got a great performance out of him, none of it matters. The only thing that matters is what ends up in the editing room. My editor makes a point out of never coming to set and not getting to know the actors because she says she doesn't want to be influenced by the reality of it all because the audience is not going to know that. The audience is not going to know the location, know the actors, know the whatever. But she just wants to work with what actually materializes on the screen. And I think that's a really, really good approach. Right.
1: Another thing I think that's really interesting with the documentary approach is that you can – I mean you can do this with a regular narrative – But the idea that characters are lying and that you're finding out the truth behind things, it just, it it seems a little more realistic when you're seeing like characters, like when you're talking, the two characters are they find out the girl is is pregnant. So they they have their conversation and then they talk to the dad and the dad's saying stuff and you know, you feel like he's lying or this person is is saying something and and you're trying to get to the truth with that. Yeah. Uh, One thing that's always intriguing to me is the whole, idea that once you get into the second act, you know, or even the second part of the second act, that the, the energy kind of dies in a lot of stories. And that's where most movies kind of start Mm -hmm, to, you mm -hmm. know, you start to like kind of wander around the theater. Um, do you have any, any, um, advice on that or anything that you can talk about in terms of the way you tell a story, you know, like structure it together so that it doesn't fall apart during that area. I th- I,
2: it's it's hard, obviously, because the second. I mean, one thing that happened, we learned the Sitfield three act structure originally, and mm-hmm. and I think what people always were bumping up against was the second act is too low, it's too too long, and it kind of there's a there's a drop in the middle, and then Sitfield very smartly invented the midpoint which is like you have the turning point from the first act to the second act, you have the turning point from the second act to the third act, and now he basically introduced another turning point, which he called the midpoint, where everything shifts in the story. I think that's a big help, and then mm. you just have to you have to keep having ideas. I always have the, the problem with scripts that I'm getting, that I have the feeling writers are inventing and having ideas in, into the second act, if I'm lucky, until the end of the second act, and then it's – oh, then there's violence and then there's people throwing each other from buildings and shooting and car chases. And it's almost as if they start stop writing and just say – and then third act, generic third act, action. <laughs> and I'm, right. I'm always saying – because it's hard to tell your agents what you're looking for. I'm always saying if you can find me a third act that is not based on physical violence – on generic physics. And that's hard, especially in horror movies and slasher movies, because it's always like the big confrontation in the third act. But if you can find me a script that has a confrontation in the third act that is not based on who is drawing his knife first and stabbing the other person first, then I want to read that. And that has to do with, with the other thing we were talking about earlier, that if you want to give the audience something to take away, and and some kind of little bit of an of a piece of knowledge that they didn't have coming in, like how is that going to work? What are they going to learn out of someone drawing, pulling out their knife sooner than the other person? That's not really something, you know, the story doesn't resolve in a way that is teaching the audience something about life other than right. always be armed and always draw your weapon. The other <laughs> um, so that's, that's the main thing I'm looking for. And I have the feeling if there is a strong third act, like, like some, something that still has ideas, then the chance that the second act that's leading up to that is strong and not generic and doesn't slump is much bigger than if the second act is leading towards a generic third act. But it's, it's tough. You really kind of have to, you can't ever be lazy and you can't ever mm-hmm. go to like the common places and have things play out, especially if you're working with a three-act structure because the audience is so savvy that you you really kind of have to continue giving them something. So don't start shooting before your script does that. What really helps is telling your script to someone. Like I did that mm-hmm. with Last Exorcist without knowing that. Like every actor uh, that came in in the beginning, because they hadn't read the script, I told them the entire story of the script And watching them by by, after you've said it so many times, it's kind of an automatic thing. You don't even think about it anymore. So you can have the 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 mental resource to really watch the listener react and you can tell exactly where they are engaged and where you are losing them. Like I always Mm -hmm. lost them at the end. I should have known that there was always (laughs) there was always a slump in the third act looking back at it now that I should have reacted to. We should have rewritten it. Um, but it's really like you have to tough, you have to be tough with yourself in that moment. And it hurts because you don't want to see, you don't want to acknowledge that you're losing them. You don't want to have to rethink something. But if you don't do it there, then the problem is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So I guess you have to keep inventing the story until you can tell it in a way that keeps the reader engaged the entire time. And you can tell by, um, like you, you hear a lot of people telling you their story like this. So there is a, a student that falls in love with this girl. And in the end, it turns out she was a guy all along. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of go like, wait, okay, you told me the first act. You told me the third act. What's the second act? And you can kind of tell that the second act is going to slump because in the, in the three sentence of the elevator pitch version, it doesn't even come into play. You know, so I guess you have mm-hmm. to keep working on your overall story until you can tell it in a way where you don't lose the audience ever, and then I think you know that you have a second act that will hold up mm-hmm. do you when you're writing, do
1: you try to write lots of notes and get everything out and i mean do a lot of the work basically have the whole Story there before you actually begin the screenwriting process?
2: Yeah, I'm I'd be snobbish to talk about because I haven't written a screenplay by myself since film script <laughs> twelve years ago. Um but when okay. I am writing I mean they were all, always talking, I think that's very true, about the inner critic that gets in the way. And we had that very strongly. We had a great screenwriting teacher and she taught us all the techniques. And the the result was that we were a class of great script doctors. We always knew what was wrong with stuff. But none of us ever wrote anything again because what we wrote could never hold up to our expectation. Yeah. So to get this critic out of the way, the only technique that I've ever heard about that does that is to have a notepad for the critic and just write everything down, you know, give him, give him the space to be heard so that he doesn't get in the way anymore. But then attend to those notes later. Don't let them get into the way of the initial brainstorming flow when you're writing something and that really kind of works. And yeah, I, I do that, um, religiously.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: I I don't start writing anything before I don't have an exact structure. I have the, the turning points. I'm very much going by Christopher Campbell's, um, hero's journey, which I think is an amazing book. Um, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, which then Christopher Vogler wrote into uh, a book called The Writer's Journey, which which is absolute, I think, absolute genius. And of course, there's a lot of controversy. Is it too formulaic? Is it too whatever, whatever? But just to be aware of those principles, of those archetypes, um, I think helps you hugely in structuring it. And that's what you're talking about, about the slump in the second act. That also helps you to avoid that. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of stuff. Vogler is one of my favorite books. And, you know, one of the things that it helps me with is when I'm writing, when I'm in the middle of a story, you know, if you go back, I never read, I never went through the process of reading all those books before I started writing. Uh You know, it was funny because I I was already writing and then I was like, oh, well, this looks like an interesting book. And I would read that or, you know, even McKee's Story or, you know, Save the Cat, all these other books that are, you know, kind of the canon of screenwriting books. And it's not that you learn screenwriting from them, but you can – it kind of jumpstarts your your thought process right. of, oh, OK, you know, if you're, if you're listening to Vogler, he's got all these different archetypes, you know, all these different characters that have played a role traditionally in stories. And you can say, oh, well, this character is kind of the gatekeeper or whatever, you know, and it just kind of – it helps you jumpstart that kind of like creative process. Yeah, I, to- you know? I
2: totally agree. I think it's about uh, getting you to ask the right questions and that's mm-hmm. – that's where the formulaic thing, I don't care that it's formulaic because I don't have to have everything come into play if I don't want it, but it can't hurt to ask yourself the question, you know, do I need that in that turning point here? If the answer is no, then fine. But at least you didn't miss asking yourself the question. And I, by Pardon. now I've even put together like a questionnaire with 36 question, questions that I'm asking myself for every scene. Cause so much energy goes into remembering the questions that, if I have that written down once, it's different for every story. Obviously, the answer, but the questions are always the same. Like, what are you, what are you trying to make the audience feel? How is, what is lighting communicating? What is bum, 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 bum? All these, what's the subtext? What's the obstacle? What's the objective? There's always stuff uh, that, what are the stakes? There's always stuff that will contribute tension to a scene. And it really helps me to not have to start from scratch every single time and then go like, Oh yeah, right. The obstacles. But I have one questionnaire that clearly says what are the obstacles, and then it gets me to think about it. And that's basically what all these screenwriting techniques do for me. They get you to ask the right questions, and that's huge.
1: You actually have that document?
2: I do. Yeah, I can. You can post it. I can email it to
1: you. Oh yeah, that would no. I would absolutely love to just totally. see that. It's you know that's that's really helpful because whenever you're you know you know I haven't directed a feature, but I mean the the idea of you know having something to make sure you always have to like kind of get your head in the game and be like, okay, am I sure that all these things are happening because exactly. you don't want to go back later and be like, this could have been much better if I had
2: just exactly.
1: remember that they, maybe they're fighting a little in this scene or maybe there's like, you know, there can be more tension with this or that. Right, right, right. Totally okay. Right. So I wanted to, um, uh, I don't, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything about the last exorcism. Um, I... It's one of my I, – I really – it's it's like one of my favorite horror films of all time. Oh, wow. So.
2: Thank you so much. I don't, <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't hear, I don't hear that a lot because a lot of the real horror audience hated the movie with a passion. Oh, really? Which I, see, the thing that you always have to take into consideration is that we are rarely seeing a movie cold, right? We are always going in. We've seen a trailer. We know that and that and that about it. And that, that's uh-huh. actually an interesting story. When I – like when Lionsgate bought it, they were – counting something on their fingers. And I was like, what are they counting? And it turned out they're counting while they were watching the movie. They're counting trailer moments. And when, (laughs) when, you know, so when they were deciding Mm. whether to buy the movie or not, they wanted to make sure that there are seven trailer movies, the trailer moments in the movie that they can cut a trailer from. And once they reached that, they were like, okay, we're going to buy the movie. So that is something that I'm now keeping in mind when I'm writing or thinking <laughs> of a story because if there, if you have six trailer moments that you are fine with giving away in the trailer but one the last one is a major revelation you know of a character that turns out to be the bad guy or of you know something then the marketing department won't care they will cut it into the trailer and you can argue all you want you have no power over that anymore they will give away your best kept secret and with last exorcism It was kind of similar in that the whole movie is basically based on the question, is this girl crazy or is she possessed? And Mm. you only get the answer at the very last minute in the movie. You're waiting for that for 90 minutes. But what Lionsgate did to, to create a great trailer was they took a shot of the girl crawling away from the camera. They played it backwards. So now she's crawling towards the camera then they flopped it, so now it's upside down. They put a silhouette in it that it looks like she's in the in the light of a flashlight, and now it looks like she's crawling towards camera on the ceiling, which <laughs> which is a great shot, you know. And people yeah. were complaining afterwards, like, "Where is that great shot in the movie?" But it was in the movie. It was just you know, backwards and on the floor. <laughs> but it also gives away after eighteen seconds in the trailer that the mo- that the girl is possessed because otherwise she couldn't climb on the on the. Ceiling. And we were so careful not to have her do anything in the movie that a crazy girl couldn't do. Like in our movie, she didn't levitate, she didn't spin her head, she didn't, you know, whatever, whatever, because we needed to keep that question alive. But of course, I should have, if I had known that Lionsgate is going to put the answer into the trailer, I would have structured that differently because now we had an audience that had gone to see the movie because of the trailer, but was always 90 minutes ahead of the movie. So it must have been a really boring boring experience for them to watch the movie because the main spine of it just completely fell apart so i don't i don't get a lot of people that like most of the people that really love the last exorcism are not horror people necessarily Hmm. they kind of like i I get that a lot where it's like normally i don't like horror but i really love the last exorcism yeah yeah rarely do i get i love horror and i love the last exorcism
1: That's that's really surprising because you know I I think it's one of the most effective horror movies that I've seen you know I, and I watch a lot of movies and I I really have gotten to the point now with Netflix where I'll put something on and I'll give it about five minutes right, you know right. and if it doesn't pull me in because there's so many bad horror movies now it's just like the now that the um, the digital revolution and everybody's got cameras and I mean it seems like everybody's shooting horror movies but there's a lot of people that really shouldn't be making right, horror right, 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 right. that are making them, you know, See, but
2: that tells you a lot about, cause we were talking about the fast first act. You know, mm-hmm. if if you give the movie five minutes that used to be like the title sequence wasn't even over after five minutes. And now, <laughs> now there's so, it's so easy to kind of click the next movie that as a filmmaker, you just have to be aware of that and give the audience something like I was, I was, when I was on that, jury in Kosovo, there was all these short films. I had to watch eight hours of short films and there was this beautiful movie about two monks in the snow, you know, and I mm-hmm. f- fell asleep immediately. I was like, if you, don't, <laughs> if you don't start with an explosion or a rape <laughs> right. or something crazy, <laughs> right. That wakes me up and goes like, watch this, you know, then you're, you're kind of screwed for sure. I yeah. think with the, with the horror, I, th- I, I, I think the next successful horror filmmaker is the one that can figure out the next step after the fake documentary. Cause I, I, I love fake documentary. I think there's real strength in the format, but I think that people are tired of the conceit and the gimmick. And there is a certain cheapness that comes with it. You know, and people, I think right. want the next thing. And I think if, if whoever it is can take the strengths Of that movie, but roll it – of that style, but roll it into a conventional movie, then you'd really have something. Like it's not a horror movie, but Blue Valentine's that the Ryan Gosling, Michelle Williams. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They, I think, were very close to that where they – you can tell that the performances are so fresh that I I bet anything that they are not following any script, that they're improvising the whole thing. Thing And yet it's not the fake documentary conceit. It's not like, oh, here's a documentary crew, here's a filmmaker, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind right. of, I think, the beginning of an approach where someone takes the strengths of both mediums and puts them together. And in terms of a look, it's so bizarre because it used to be that that film was so slow that you had to artificially lighted right now video cameras and film are so fast that you really wouldn't have to light anything we've just become so accustomed to the artificial artificially lit look that when Mm -hmm. it's not artificially lit it kind of stands out but maybe it's time to get back to that and to say we don't have just because we don't want to light something and we want to shoot available light that doesn't mean that we suddenly need to have the documentary the fake documentary format
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: But we can also do that in a conventionally narrative movie. Right. So. That- yeah, the thing that, that we're trying to
1: do is, um, well, that I'm trying to do is, you know, I, I, I put something together that was kind of, you know, similar to, you know, The Last Exorcism and, and you know, the documentary format. But I come from a background of documentaries. So I love documentaries by Errol Morris right. and a lot of these HBO, you know, the the true crime things and everything. And so the idea was to say, okay, can we go can we do it have elements of that, you know, handheld camera and going into stuff, but also have more of like, you know, Errol Morris films, all these beautiful scenes that are very cinematic as well, mm-hmm. you know. So we're going to kind of see if that works cuz you know, I totally agree with you. You know, it's like you get a a couple of hits, you know, um the last exorcism wreck was also a really good yeah. example, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and then it's like people when I would tell them about what I was doing, the first thing out of their mouth would be like, "Oh, it's, it's found footage, right and I'm like, no, it's not really, but they're like, eh, you know we're we're done with that, so right, it's right, like right, right, okay, right. they won't even let you in the door anymore, so it's like, okay well, let me let me go back to my <laughs> no, drawing let me go back
2: to the drawing board, oh, uh, forget it, yeah, maybe you uh, go to that next filmmaker. That will break out. <laughs> well, who knows? We'll it's def- it's ne- the time is definitely right for the next idea to come along, yeah. just like paranormal activity or like Blair Witch and then paranormal activity. You know, they right. really hit the timing with, with the fake documentary. I, I think if, if I were to make my first movie right now, I would really try to not make, I, I know that it's tempting to do the fake documentary thing because it's cheap. But again, mm. exactly what you were saying, people already kind of roll their eyes and are tired. Of it and won't even give it a chance. So if you can figure out any alternative, it's probably worth experimenting. <laughs> with.
1: Um, one other thing I, I also noticed is the use of music in *The Last Exorcism*, which is kind of breaking away from the documentary format because you do incorporate a soundtrack. Right. So yeah, I was you know, just curious. It's about just
2: I think I think score is such a powerful tool in horror filmmaking. And you kind mm-hmm. of have to obviously find your balance of, of realism in the whole thing. I mean, people were complaining. It's amazing with the internet right now, how many complaints you have to, you know, <laughs> have to deal with. Um, of course, people were like very, Oh, this is obviously shot. It's two with two cameras or it's, you know, different scenes because they cut that together and that together. So then you kind mm-hmm. of, and it's true. So then you kind of have to weigh is that complaint worth or would it have been worth it to not have shot reverse shot in your movie just for that i can never say the word ver- verisimilitude there is for that for the authenticity yeah. or mm-hmm. or not and you kind of weigh your your tools and what you're going to use and all. and with score it was pretty clear to me that the effect that score has to me, way outweighs the the artifice of having score on on the movie. Plus, a lot of documentaries these days, if you look at Nick Broomfield stuff, or a lot of like modern documentaries, very very heavily use music, use score. Mm-hmm. So that was never a problem really for me.
1: Okay. Um. So let's move into. Um, is there any are there any stories about the the. The life after you made it or, or, you know, is there any insight in terms of, I mean, did you go to festivals or was it just a straight sell to Lionsgate? Yeah. In terms of distribution?
2: Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with that. It's amazing how much okay. as a filmmaker you don't have. Once you deliver your cut, there is really nothing you, you're never being consulted again with. <laughs> and especially here, they, they did a very smart thing. And Eli is a great salesman. And he went around to different studios and showed uh, the, the movie to different studios at exactly the same time and let them know that other studios are watching it as well to get a mm-hmm. bidding war started. And that's, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Everyone, which was amazing to me, everyone wanted the movie except for Fox. But the Weinstein's mm-hmm. wanted it, Universal wanted it, and Lionsgate, and blah, blah, blah. And then in the end, it just came out to who is willing to commit to the most PA, which is,
1: mm-hmm.
2: what is it? Pr- prints and advertising. So how many, yeah.
1: prints in, and, advertising. and how
2: many theaters are you going to screen? And how much money is going to be invested into advertising? And Lionsgate committed to $16 million in PA which is kind of amazing for a movie that was made on a budget of $1.5 million. <laughs> um, and that was the highest that there was. And they committed to like almost 3000 screens, which is huge or 2000 so, thousands of screens. Um, <laughs> and what then happened, which was kind of amazing. I never knew about this. They showed the trailer in, in theaters and they kind of, the, the process is that you buy basically advertising time in front of another movie, right? So you are completely gambling whether that movie that your trailer is cut in front of is going to be a huge success and millions mm-hmm. of people will see it, or it's a complete flop and no one will ever see it. And we had, we kind of had both. We had the movie in, in front of Splice, which I thought was a great movie, science fiction mm-hmm. movie, but also a complete flop that no one ever saw. So that was kind of complete right. waste. But then we also had the trailer in front of Inception, which obviously ah, okay. was a huge blockbuster. So that helped him. And then what's happening is that the, the studio is working with a company that is basically sending out spies all over the country <laughs> into uh-huh. movie theaters. And they have a questionnaire and they, all they're doing is that they write down people's reactions to the trailer. And they write down quotes, like they sit behind you, as I saw the, the questionnaires afterwards, and they would write a boy eighteen looks up from his popcorn uh, and says to his girlfriend, We gotta go see that. And you have <laughs> the They write down how many people are watching the screen when the trailer is playing, how many people are going to the bathroom, how many people are not interested, how many people are all that kind of stuff. And then they that gets translated into a score. So the studio knows how well a trailer played. And mm-hmm. we were playing, uh, like our uh, release date was against Piranha 3D, which was <laughs> tur- turned out to be an amazing movie. Alex, Alex wow. Aja, amazing. But they had problems with the trailer because they, they didn't have their digital piranhas ready by the time that the that the trailer was cut. So they put in mm-hmm. some kind of weird bad, artificial piranha so the trailer looked crap so our score was a lot higher with our trailer than piranha's uh score was which was important because you you try to avoid having two movies of the same genre open the same weekend because you're just cannibalizing your audience right if you are the Mm -hmm. only horror movie on a weekend that means you get 100 percent of the horror movie audience rather than having to split it with the other one so it was kind of this it was always clear that Last Exorcism and Piranha would not end up actually opening on the same weekend. But none of the two studios, Dimension and Lionsgate, was budging. It was like this game of chicken. And, <laughs> and both were like, we're not moving, we're not moving, we're not moving. And then when the trailer scores came out, it was clear that that Dim Dimension was going to move. And that gave Lionsgate such a big boost in, in confidence, I guess, about the movie, that they suddenly uh, increased the P&A from $16 million to $24 million, which just means a lot of presence in TV spots and a lot of presence in posters and a lot of, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think mm-hmm. that really catapulted the thing then to, well, not go, it was like number one on Friday and it was number one on, on Saturday. But then the movie Takers like overtook it on Sunday by $100,000 or something. But mm-hmm. that doesn't really matter because everyone is looking which movie is winning the weekend on Friday by the time they don't rarely check in again on Monday and go like, okay, who actually won the weekend? So we were in everyone's eyes. We had this number one movie and because it was a French French, like the French finance, it was French money. So it was officially a French movie. And in Mm -hmm. France, you don't go by opening weekend, whether you won the weekend or not, but you go by opening Friday. So to this day, France would say Last Exorcism was the number one movie in the country when that's actually not true. But there is a lot, of, <laughs> there's a lot of PR obviously coming from you have the number one movie in the country because you sell the movie worldwide, but the entire world waits until the U.S. has opened the movie. Like France wouldn't suddenly go before the U.S. or Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. or Australia or China. And they're looking at the numbers and depending on the numbers, they will decide how many screens to, to show it on, how much uh, P&A to do in their own territories, and if you have a blockbuster in the US, that means that suddenly the entire world pumps a lot of money into your movie, and you suddenly have a worldwide hit, whereas if you bomb in the US, you can have the greatest movie in the world, but it would be very rare that foreign territories have the confidence to go for a big release, even though you bomb in, in the US. So that's how we suddenly became this kind of $70 million uh, worldwide thing on a budget of
0: 1.5. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: Which sounds great, but obviously if you pump 25 25- 24 million dollars into something you could market anything you know (laughs) Uh, but that was kind of great and and because it's unfortunately true that all hollywood ever looks at is your last movie and how successful your last movie was and they go for some reason they rate success by box office which is like such Mm -hmm. crap because i had nothing to do with the marketing you know the movie could be horrible and there was great marketing and it was a great box office success that I then get hired for the next movie because they think I'm a great director because the movie did well kind of doesn't make sense. And the other way around, I can have the greatest movie. If you look at Steve jobs this weekend, which is, you know, an amazing movie with amazing Oscar willing winning talent, but totally Mm -hmm. flopped at the weekend. Uh, If you just judge Danny Boyle by the box office income, then I guess he's a bad filmmaker now or something. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. bizarre, but it kind of opened a lot of doors for me afterwards and got me to... I, did you go
1: back to Germany and uh, what? kind of get to promote there?
2: Yeah, I did. But Last Exorcism was a huge flop in Germany. And not oh, only <laughs> was it a flop, but it wasn't even a big release. It's very weird. Like, which It was huge in France, huge in Italy, completely flopped in Spain, completely went up against Harry Potter, completely flopped <laughs> okay. in Germany. My friends hadn't even heard of it so that was a little bit <laughs> obviously did picked... you tell them you say I'm a big filmmaker <laughs> you told
1: well that's why Facebook... I'm really famous
2: they're <laughs> like yeah whatever Yeah, well, that's why Facebook is so important so that everyone knows what a <laughs> successful filmmaker I'm in the US um, yeah and then I made my next movie called 13 Sins that I'm really proud of and there was a lot of fun to make and that I would argue is as good as The Last Exorcism but it made $9,000 at the box office it was screening on 22 screens which, again, has nothing to do with the movie. It's just right. that Dimension, it was a Dimension movie, and Dimension hasn't had a hit in a long time. So they just don't have the money. Even if they wanted, they couldn't pump $24 million into marketing the movie. So if you're working with Dimension, you kind of know that you're probably not going to go theatrical until you're, unless you're like Scream 5 or Scary Movie or something. And then suddenly my career is judged by my last box office which is $9,000. So all the cachet that you have after the $70 million movie is kind of out the window and it's not, you know, it's not your fault, but there's nothing you can do against it. You kind of live and die with your movie and you're held responsible even for stuff that you had no influence over. Well, how,
1: how was that? Um, cause that was, you know, looking at your career, that was the first straight up narrative, you know, not handheld, right. Um, film you know how how was that different how did you approach because one of the things that i was you know i do a lot of research and the actors were talking about how well prepared you were
2: you know well, that is I was, that, that is the questionnaire that we were talking about like me. Right? because i always <laughs> like i get starstruck and i get nervous like suddenly working with a ron perlman mm-hmm. would completely <laughs> terrify me And the only or or with Rutina Wesley, who I had such a crush on when she was on True Blood and to suddenly have her in person. (laughs) And the only thing that protects me from from completely hiding in my shell is (laughs) that I know that I am going to be more versed in the story than they are. Right. I've sat over the script for years. I know every line I wrote. Some of those lines, I know why they're in there. There isn't a single question that they can ask me that I don't know the answer to. I'm not always going to give them the answer because sometimes you kind of want them to experiment and try and whatever. But the only level of security that I get comes from my knowledge of the script. So I guess that's what they're talking about when they say I'm so prepared. I always want to have one version that I know I could fall back on of this, this scene. If there's no idea on the day and I completely draw a blank, which you always do. There's a one or two days in every shoot where you just for some reason freeze and don't have any answers. And then it's good mm-hmm. to be able to fall back on something that you have figured out beforehand and kind of go off of that. And yeah, it was important to me to not be pigeonholed into the fake documentary corner, which happens pretty quickly. And because in all meetings that I had, people were always asking me the same thing, which is can you shoot conventionally And I was always like, well, that's what I studied in film school for years just because I've made two fake documentary films. Like, they are the exception. It's not that the the, uh, narrative standard movie is the exception to what I do, Mm -hmm. but the fake documentary. So I kind of had to prove that to people, I think. So it was important to me that it's not a fake documentary movie. But if you notice, there isn't a single locked off shot in 13 Sins. It's all handheld. It's much much more stable than Last Exorcism because the character itself is not supposed to have a uh, character, but it's all handheld, which goes back to the whole helping the performances and and injecting the energy.
1: Right. I mean, it's not, what I mean is, yeah, it's not like a shaky camera though, but it is.
2: Right. Right. You know,
1: Um, what was the hardest part about changing formats and going into like a purely narrative and, and, you know, multicam kind of shot uh, film like that? Well, or in general, what's the hardest part of like making a film? What, what's kind of the part that you dread?
2: I dread them all. I'm terrified of every single step of it. And then every time, <laughs> every time after that step is done, I'm always like, oh, that was kind of pleasant. I don't know why I was so afraid of this. But the next part is really going to suck. And then it's, <laughs> with every, absolutely everything, when I'm writing, I think writing is the most terrible. When I'm casting, I'm like, oh, my God, we'll never find our people. When I'm blocking, it's a, it's, it's a stressful thing if you're not... Not made for that, I don't think character wise I'm necessarily made I'm more of a writer' soul than a director soul. I'm very introverted and shy and don't really. I'm not a leader person. that goes like everyone, look at me, I have the solution, follow me kind of a thing so it, mm-hmm. it sucks directing sucks a lot of energy every minute of it just being social and being in exchange with so many people for weeks it's just i'm I'm dead after a movie, so that's kind of hard. Um, The perfectionism is definitely hard because you have, have, with with the standard movie, because you have a very clear idea of what you want it to be. And because it never is, you're always slightly frustrated and you have to work against that frustration. Whereas with a fake documentary, it's the opposite. You didn't have a very clear idea of what the outcome was going to be, but you get all these gifts along the way. So you're always in a state of euphoria. So it's very different. Like one is a very dark place, but even with last exorcism, I, I'm I'm so tense when I'm shooting that I can't, can't can't really enjoy it. If I look back at the last exorcism time, which was the greatest time was great cast. Ashley Bell could not be a lovelier and more talented person. I had my friends around me and my cinematographer, my editor, it could not have been a better time. And after it was done, I was like, why didn't I enjoy that more? And it is because you're always anxious because they're always expecting the next day to kind of go down in flames somehow, or in, in me at least, I do. I'm kind of a, a defensive pessimist. I'm always expecting doom around the next corner. So that's maybe the hardest <laughs> hardest thing with the standard format, and that you have to block. I mean, there's so much you don't have to do in a fake documentary. You don't tell the actors where they have to stand when they say what line, you know, and that really helps. And and it saves you a lot of time because you can count on the camera following the movement of the actors because you don't have to light anything you can pan and go wherever you want and it's just much more restrictive in a in a standard format.
1: Now, do you watch films while you're? I mean, the obvious question is, and I know that you you answered this previously about. Uh, movies like The Exorcism or movies that are kind of in a similar genre, do you try to watch movies that are kind of um, in the same genre that of the one that you're making, sure. or do you try to yeah, stay? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay.
2: Like with Last Exorcism, it was important because we knew that we were up against a classic, The Exorcist, that no one mm-hmm. is ever going to top. And if, if we were trying to top it, we just fail. So the only the only way for us was to stay away from everything that The Exorcist did, like the levitation and the crawling down the stairs backwards and the, this whole sexual stuff and go for something completely different and get out of the way of the exorcist. And because of that, it was important to watch that the exorcist and know it in and out and also watch recent movies like the exorcism of Emily Rose, because you also Mm -hmm. wanted to stay clear out of stuff that they did. And then there was, there was a scene that I loved in last exorcism that was so creepy And then someone gave me a copy of Paranormal Activity before that came out. We were (laughs) were editing Last exit, And it was exactly the same scene. It's that scene where the girl stands up and just stares at her boyfriend sleeping. And then it's Mm -hmm. kind of the clock going forward. And, you know, she stands there for eight hours. And we had the same without the clock, obviously, but we had the same with the sun going up and sun going down of our girl standing there staring at the exorcist who is asleep. And we had to cut that scene out because I know we would have been accused of copying that scene, even though I hadn't seen it when we shot it or wrote it. Mm -hmm.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: Yeah. But yeah, you kind of have to be aware of what what the movies are that you are going to be compared to. Like my next movie that I'm working on right now is a home invasion movie, so I've watched, you know, The Strangers and Your Next and all those movies that came out recently or that are classics. The genre, the Wreck, right. Wreck and Wreck Two, and you kind of uh-huh. know them. And you also it helps to just pull uh, freeze frames from stuff that you like, the look that you like. That doesn't have to be. Home invasion movies necessarily, like I pulled a lot of Blade Runner um, references that obviously it couldn't be more different from story wise, but I really like the look and it really helps if you can show people what you like and what you don't like with my cinematographer i don't have to do that anymore as much because we've made so many i mean many movies together but we've known each other for 15 years and my taste hasn't changed and his taste hasn't changed so we don't have to re-educate each other every single time we work together but it definitely helps for everyone else and for the producers that always ask how are you going to shoot this which is such a weird question how am i going to shoot it but i don't even know what they're talking about i guess they mean (laughs) what what is the color space spectrum or are you going to use long lenses or not? Or are you going to move the camera? And I mean, a lot of directing is pretending that you have answers that you actually don't have. <laughs> it, it really is like every, every meeting that I have, the truth would be, I have no idea. Like to every question, how, what, what do you, whom do you want to cast? What do you, I have no idea. I'm not there yet. We're still in the story, but you need to give them answers because they want to feel that you're in complete control which everyone knows is a lie, but because everyone is lying. Every director that's auditioning for a movie is coming up with all these you know, completely made-up things that they throw out as soon as they start making the movie, but you first have to walk in with the concept. So it really helps to have a visual presentation together and to have a starting point for, for the work you're going to be doing.
1: Well, I've got one final question for you. I, I really appreciate you know all the time that you've given us. Um, sure. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice, give a younger version of yourself advice, what would you tell yourself?
2: Well, I I lucked into it. I would tell myself to fucking hell enjoy it because there's (laughs) there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. It's not suddenly going to derail just because you enjoy it. You know, you don't have to live in fear. (laughs) But I know exactly on the next movie I'll be in fear again. And maybe that's just my MO. I, I think it's getting better from movie to movie. It's probably not something I can just tell my younger self and he would do it. But I l- lucked out with a lot of things that that did happen with me. But I would tell, and I've basically gone through that while we were talking, I would tell younger people not to to look for the green light, wait for the green light, to write something for the resources that they have, to not be perfectionist and wait for the right moment because it'll never come, and to not try to impress Hollywood with stuff that is money-related because they have all the money in the world. I think those those things, that's actually at least what I'm trying to tell everyone from my old roommates who I watched (laughs) wait and develop for five years and the script was never quite ready and maybe someone optioned it and maybe they'll get an agent. Until they walked out of the door with the script and said, fuck it, I'm going to shoot this myself and I'm going to shoot it now, I always thought it was never going to happen. And so I think you have to get to that point. And if you look at people, how how people that are working in the film industry, how they started, most of them have exactly that story. If it's Oran Pelly with Paranormal Activity, who just shot it for $15,000 in his apartment with two friends or whomever, like the first efforts are always are um, almost always independent efforts that they didn't need anyone's approval for because no one is going to bet on you until you've proven that you can do it. Short films are not proving it to them anymore, so it has to be a feature. So you do have to make a feature on your own and then just pray that you get into festivals and get noticed somehow.
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I did an interview with uh, Brian Udovich. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah and uh that that was one of the key things that he said during that interview was that you know when they're putting together projects that they're not one of these gigantic studios they find different elements and it's like okay what can we let's build a story out of what we already have versus you know what what i would do when i you know was just a writer was i would sit down and i would just say okay what can i imagine you know and i right, put right, stuff right. together and there was a part of me that would try to you know okay well i don't want to have that spaceship blow up, you know, I try to make it small enough. So a production company would look at it, but I was never writing it from what do I have right here around me that we could actually film and just, you know, make something really quick. So I I think that's
2: really important because you think it'll be easier if you have more freedom and if you can Mm -hmm. write whatever you want and you're not restricted by reality. But I think it's the opposite. Like with me, at, at least with Necessary Death, the story came very quickly because I had all these restrictions and I didn't look in outer space and I didn't look to the French revolution to whatever, but it was very clear. It has to be something that takes place in my kitchen, you know, and that that (laughs) suddenly gives you a better framework for stuff. And that, that helps for sure. I wouldn't even, cause you, you said you were writing something smaller so that a production company will like it. I would even urge people to go one step more radical and write something that they can do without a production company. Because even production mm-hmm. companies are are, are not – most of it will fall apart or they're never going to make it and you're tied up in that stuff. if you really you, – you need the, the persistence and the energy to emerge with something that you've made without the help of a production company, I think. And there are probably mm-hmm. a lot of examples that would prove me wrong. <laughs> but but I, I also I don't know anyone who actually relied on a production company and then got a movie made. I, mm-hmm. I just don't. I know the people that that have gone the other direction and shot their own thing and then won festivals. And my wife is shooting something with her best friend right now. They've made a movie that was huge and was made for ten thousand dollars or something. There's just the thing is that there's no excuse anymore today. I understand that there were times when you needed that kind of money because the the average cost a quarter million dollars and the 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 camera shot 35 millimeter film and whatever and you needed that support the great thing is today you need talent on your side but you don't need the support anymore and mm-hmm. that's really a big chance that we should take i think
1: well daniel i really appreciate you coming on the show i mean I, this has been an amazing episode we're, we're at like two hours now it
2: was really fun, <laughs> Just... it was really fun. thanks jason <laughs>
0: I want to thank Jason so much for doing such an amazing job with this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at indiefilmhustle.com forward slash 680. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com. Subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.